Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Hey guys, we did it. We are concluding our series in Colossians today. And it has been an amazing journey. We've spent more weeks than we even thought we would in this letter. Uh, But it has been transformative for me. I believe it's been transformative for our church. And if you're just joining us, feel free to go back and listen to the podcast or our YouTube page. Because I believe that this letter is not only an incredible book of the Bible, but it's timely and it's prophetic in nature for where we are right now. And so Paul does this brilliant exposition about the person and the divinity of Jesus, gives us this rich theology of the gospel and the resurrection and how we live in response to that. And then as he ends his letter, we find a series of salutations, of little notes he wants to portray from the people that are with him, attending to him, and some of them with him in jail that he wants to declare and give these messages before the letter ends. And it's easy uh, to look at this portion of Scripture and kind of glaze over it, fast forward it. Um, But there is so much in here that if we can pay attention to the unique instructions, the prayers, the exhortations that Paul is giving in uh, lining up these people, there's a lot in there for us. And specifically today, we're going to be looking at the person named Epaphras. Now, if you remember all the way back to week one, the letter to the Colossians was written in response to this man named Epaphras' report given to Paul. So Paul, while sitting in prison, is writing these letters. Um, Scholars believe he's writing Ephesians, maybe in the middle of it or towards the end of it, when Epaphras arrives and gives him this report about the church in Colossae. The reason this is important is because Epaphras is almost a sense of urgency you get in Paul's letter that they are facing some very serious threats. And it's this pastoral heart of Epaphras that would leave and travel hundreds of miles to Rome, find Paul, and to get his pastoral and apostolic instruction for this young church. And that's exactly what Paul does. So I think it's interesting that Paul mentions Epaphras at the beginning of the letter, and then he mentions him at the end. And he says that Epaphras is uh, praying for three things. And I think that's important because these three things actually frame the entire book of Colossians. We find these things again and again. And I thought it was a great way for us to conclude was the originator of Colossians, was this guy named Epaphras, is also the way this letter concludes. So I want us to take a look at these uh, concluding thoughts that Paul has from Epaphras. Colossians 4, 12-13 says this, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Now, there's three things, I don't know if you guys picked up on this, that Paul is saying that Epaphras is wrestling in prayer for. This is the pastor of that church. 
the person who knows these people, who knows this community more than any, anyone else. And these are the three things that Epaphras is wrestling with in prayer. And I think, to be honest, I resonate that I'm praying and wrestling in prayer for our community to grab a hold of these three things. And these are the three things. Number one, that the church would stand firm. Number two, that the church would reach maturity. And number three, that they would have full assurance. And so as we conclude this letter, I just want to walk through these three things that Paul, he touches on all throughout the letter, but the pastoral wrestling of Epaphras and what this would do in us. So let's just begin with this idea of stand firm. And so what Paul's doing here as he is describing the wrestling of Epaphras is he takes this Greek word stand, which is just a common word we would use for stand, but he, he joins it with this modifying verb, meaning it's standing in a position to fight. And so when you, every other time you see these two words joined together, like in Ephesians 6, it's within the context of of, of a war or of a fight, that how you stand is positioned to battle. And this is Epaphras' prayer, that the church would position themselves in their faith to stand firm in such a way to engage the enemy and the world around them in a way that would be effective and victorious for the sake of the gospel. So as I'm studying this and kind of understanding what Epaphras is wrestling through, um, I reached out to my, my friend Brandon, who's a professional boxer. And I, and I, I called him like, hey, Brandon, tell me about stance. Talk to me about how you position yourself with your feet so that you can be most effective in a fight. And he said something that I thought was so true about how we need to position ourselves in a spiritual sense. And in boxing, he was telling me, there's this thing called staying in the pocket. And that when you're boxing, if you get hit or you get clipped, human nature wants you to step backwards. It wants you to move out of the pocket. But when you do that, you are actually more susceptible to being hit harder and more dangerously. And so you actually have to train yourself to fight your human nature, to stay closer to your opponent, to not leave the pocket, so that you're actually stopping the physics of their punch. Because if they don't have enough room to fully extend their arm, you've essentially stopped the energy that's moving towards you. And it feels opposite. And so he says, in this context, the best thing you can do is stay in the pocket. And I thought, man, what a great analogy for how we are to engage within this war we have between the kingdom of light and darkness. There are moments, and I'm sure some of you of us have felt this in a more extreme way this past year, that we get clipped by the enemy. We do something that brings shame. We, we engage in a thought um, pattern that's destructive. We fall into um, anxiety. And, and in these moments, whatever that is, there will be a temptation to withdraw, a temptation for isolation, a temptation for shame to come in and say, this was you all along. There's going to be temptation that's going to want to move you out of that stance. And Epaphras is praying, stand firm. Don't lose your ground. Stay in the pocket. And he's calling them as this church 
That and, and I mean, you think about a brand new church in a polytheistic culture that is facing all sorts of philosophical and theological threats, and, and the, the scriptures are saying, don't move. You are exactly where you should be, specifically built on the theology that Paul just laid out of the greatness of Jesus. This is the pocket, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection, and ascension of who Jesus is, is our pockets, where we live from. And the reason we know this, if you go back a few verses, uh, Stevie taught on this last week, that Paul, he encourages the church in his conclusion, and, and he says something really interesting. He says, pray for us, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now, this verse might sound simple enough, but do you, do you understand the, the paradox of what Paul is saying here? Pray for us for an open door. Now, immediately, you're going to register, oh, he's asking for an open door from his prison cell. But he doesn't ask for freedom for his, for his physical body. He, opens, he asks for freedom for the gospel. The open door Paul is contending for is not for his freedom, but for the gospel's freedom. And, and so what is Paul doing? He's positioned with staying in the pocket. Paul doesn't ask to be liberated from prison. He asks for a free-flowing message of the gospel. Later, he asks for clarity, for boldness, for how he presents this. And I just think about what a backwards way of thinking for so much of where I naturally sit in my human nature. Why? Because I want to move out of the pocket. I get hurt. I want to go back into self-preservation mode. But it's within the pain, it's within the tension, it's within the stress that God is asking me, stay the course don't move your footing. Continue to step in. Ask that through, through your influence and how you live and prayer and gratitude, all things we talked about last week, that you would position yourself to continue to move forward in this world. And I'm just calling us as a church, stand firm. Position yourself in such a way not to, not to react from the circumstances around you, but to stand confidently within the context of the gospel given to you because of what Jesus has done. I love what N.T. Wright says in his book, How God Became King. He says, we've not been freed from the world. We have been freed for the world. So oftentimes we diminish the gospel to this mechanism of escape rather than a mechanism of empowerment. That we are called to not back away from this world, but to step into it with the power of the Holy Spirit. That we haven't been freed just from the world, but for the world. Epaphras, later on, uh, we, we find out that he extends his pastoral ministry past Colossae, and he extends it into Laodicea, and then into a town called Heropolis. Now, Heropolis is interesting because it was this place known for its, these, these hot springs are still there today. And so it became known for its healing cults that were there. They also had one of the largest temples dedicated to Caesar. But the thing that Heropolis was known for most in the ancient world was they believed that was the entrance to the underworld. Think about that. This is the place that the Greco-Romans believed that you could go and you could have an entrance into the underworld. Where did Heropolis go? 
I'm sorry, where did Epaphras go? To Hierapolis. He went into the very place that would be considered most dark and most um, adverse to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so Epaphras isn't just asking. He's not just saying, hey, you guys need to stand firm in your faith. He models this powerful um, posture of him continuing to extend his ministry into the darkest places of the world. In, in AD, 80 AD, actually find out that Philip was martyred in Heropolis. This is not a place that was just excited and ready for the gospel to come. But there's something more important even than life itself. And it's the powerful message that Jesus has come as the king of the world, the redeeming agent that every single heart that has been crying for. So if you are a follower of Jesus, stand firm. The second thing that Epaphras is wrestling through in his own prayer is this idea of maturity. He's longing for this infant church to grow into an adolescence and into an adult uh, force in the world around them. He's, he's asking God, please bring maturity in our, in our church. And if you remember back to, again, the first chapter of Colossians, Paul brings up this very same word of maturity. He says this, he, Jesus, is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone, here it is, fully mature in Christ. So again, Paul summarizes that the, the whole goal of his teaching and admonishing is so that they can present everyone fully mature. So all that to say is there is a goal with the gospel. It's not just enough to receive it and to hear it. But there is now a process that we undergo, that we are being moved into maturation. We are being moved from our infancy into our greater level of purpose and strength that God had destined for us, which should, which should bring up a very good question. What is that? What does Christian maturity look like? And secondly, what is the, what is the source of that? What is the source of Christian maturity? And so to answer those questions, uh, we have to turn to another one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 13, starting in verse 10, it says this, but when completeness, this word maturity, comes, when maturity comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul, this isn't the only letter he uses this word maturity. He uses it in the context of love. He says, listen, we're asking for completeness, maturity, teleos in the Greek. And he says that, you, he says, I used to, talk and eat like a, like a child, but I have grown to be a man. He's talking in spiritual metaphor here. And then he says that these three things remain. Here's the end goal. What's the end goal of our maturity? Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And so when you hear the idea in scripture of Christian maturity, you can already fast forward and know that the end goal of every follower of Jesus is to mature into a person of love. 
And so don't, don't confuse these two points. It almost seems like, well, which one is it? Are we supposed to like fight and engage in spiritual warfare? Or are we supposed to be like mature into a person of love? It almost seems like these juxtapositions. But the answer is, uh, no, it's actually, that's exactly how it works. We engage in battle. We are in a fight. There is a reason why war is used as a metaphor throughout the New Testament. But do not, can be, do not be confused because Paul says we don't fight like the world fights. Because Jesus came and engaged in the greatest spiritual battle that ever existed. And he defeated that enemy and won that battle, not through force and violence, but through an ultimate act of sacrificial love. That is why Christian maturity will accomplish what we're standing firm for. We fight by love. We engage darkness by what light brings in when we're living in a cross-shaped manner, influenced and impacted by the love of Jesus Christ. These two things are not two separate topics. I think Epaphras knows exactly. If you are to stand firm, you need to mature into a person of love. Can, Can we just sit on that for a second? If you want to engage and stand firm in your faith, you must mature into a person of love. This is what we're being called to. And so the next question naturally is, um, how do we do that? Under what power and source well do we draw from? Well, again, if you go back to how Paul used maturity first, he says, to this end, talking about maturity, I strenuously contend with all the energy and the pause. You could start thinking like, I got to work harder, memorize more Bible verses, do more open tables. I gotta, but listen to this. I strenuously contend with all energy, uh, all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. We accomplish Christian maturity because of the strength Christ works within us. And, and, and again, you, this is so important because the minute we think we can accomplish Christian maturity on our own merit, we have robbed the gospel of its power. You see, Paul in Philippians talks about how that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. There is never a moment in the life of the believer that is removed from the grace, uh, the strength that grace brings and grace alone. We have to rely on the empowerment of Jesus Christ to move us towards love. I love what Greg Kokel says. He says, do you know what the measure of spiritual maturity is in the scriptures? It is not the display of spiritual emotion or even the display of spiritual gifts, but the manifestation of spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Quoting Galatians chapter 5. And I love his insight here. He says, spiritual maturity isn't a display of spiritual emotion or spiritual gifts. It is the manifestation of spiritual fruit. We don't make fruit grow. Right? Fruit is a natural result of the root system that we have dug ourselves into. And that is, again, what we find in Colossians again and again, calling us back to what we are in Christ. There is no abundant life apart from that reality of abiding and dwelling within Christ. And what happens when we do? We stand, we stand firm in our faith, and we step into maturity in our Christian life, which leads to our third thing is that Epaphras is wrestling that they would be fully assured. Fully assured. And this idea is is compelling belief. That you would be convinced 
of everything that was just read, we just worked through in Colossians last few weeks, would you be fully assured of that? Now, I wanted, the reason why I think this is so huge is so oftentimes, and myself included, we mistake in insurance for assurance. We think that the gospel is insurance. Somehow it's a get out of hell free card that somehow the gospel is like this escapist um, kind of gift given to us. And that creates a level of insurance. Well, okay, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. I have insurance. But Epaphras isn't praying for insurance. He's praying for assurance. Assurance is not a one-time status. It is an ongoing trust posture. To be assured, fully convinced of. He assumes the insurance. He assumes you've already been given this. And we see this throughout the early letter. He's assuming you have the insurance of what the gospel brings. I'm not diminishing that, but that's not the prayer here. The prayer is for assurance. It's for being fully convinced that Jesus is who he said he is. This this word is not used very much, but it is used in Romans chapter 4. In verse 20, it says, Yet he, talking about Abraham, right, the father of faith, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded or fully assured, same Greek word, that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. I wanted just to stop right there. I know we took a little bit of a side route here, but it has a lot to do with this, how Paul understands this word of assurance. He describes this word most in context with the idea of Abraham. Abraham believed that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is where everything begins to change within the life of the believer. We, we think it, a change, we, it changes with insurance. Like, oh man, I, I raised my hand one time at summer camp or I heard a sermon and, I, you know, and I, I've given my life over to Christ. But we see that the righteousness of Abraham, which we've been grafted into through Jesus Christ, is a result of assurance. It is believing that God is able to do everything he has promised. And I just want to, I want to ask you, if you've never moved from this sense of like, well, I, I, I prayed once, so I'm saved, and so I compartmentalize my life. And you've never moved to a place of, I believe everything God says. I believe everything that God says about my finances. I believe everything God says about my relationships. I believe everything God says about my identity. I mean, you name it. I believe every single thing that God, that's full assurance It's when the truth, the promises, and the nature of God remain at the forefront lens of how you see the world around you. It's not like, well, someday I'm going to die and go to heaven. No, no, no. It's every single day of my life I see heaven because it's the lens in which I see through. I am fully convinced that what God says about my workplace, I'm fully convinced what God says about raising my kids, I'm fully convinced what God says about my breakup, I'm fully convinced what God says about my diagnosis, I'm fully convinced of who God is and his ability to deliver on his promise is true of me, and I'm gonna live within that full assurance. It changes everything. 
See, you have the ability to pray a prayer to, a, to align with a certain doctrine or orthodoxy, but your life is lived in a completely different manner. And that is not the prayer that Epaphras is praying. He's praying, I want you to be fully convinced of all that God is, and that it would affect every area of your life. And this is, the, this is our understanding of what it looks like to have the virtue of, of hope. And I, not that I don't read too much into this, but it seems like these things, literally, standing firm looks like faith to me. Maturity looks like love for me. Full assurance looks like hope for me. I mean, the, these, are, these are the things that matter most for the life of the believer. How do we follow Jesus? It's faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these of love, which is sandwiched in the middle, and, and I think that there's this, there's a sense that we are called back to the almost the fundamentals. And you kind of hear that within the sports world. If you see someone who's a great athlete start to sway, you call them back to the fundamentals. And I think at the end of the letter, we're being called back to being someone who stands firm, a church who stands firm, being a people who fully mature into a person of love, being a people who are fully convinced and fully assured of the person of God. But I, I want to end with this. Paul models for us this, again, this, this brilliant letter, this beautiful theology. But he ends his letter with this phrase, remember my chains, grace be with you. Listen, you can stand firm all you want. You can mature into a person of love and you can be fully assured of who God is. It does not mean that you do not need to continue to be a person who lives with authenticity and vulnerability and asks Remember me. Pray for me. That's how Colossians 4 starts and how it ends with a request. Don't forget about me. That's why I love faith in Jesus so much. Is It does not suppress weaknesses, but elevates weakness as an opportunity for Christ's power to be made perfect in it. Paul's not afraid to say, don't forget me. Remember my chains. Pray for me often. And so I just want to encourage us as we end this series, it, I think it ends on this high note. It ends on this call to stand firm, mature into love, be fully assured. But don't forget, the reason why we are called into a new family is that we get to live out this identity, this purpose, this call, this mission together. Remember me. And if you today just practically you're hearing this and you're like, I would love to do that. I just feel so far from that. Tell someone. Text a friend. Uh, send us an email. Ask for a prayer request. Don't, do, don't get out of the pocket. Remember, stay in community. Ask for help. Because it's in that moment that I think that God's grace gets to be extended to us through, his, through our brothers and sisters which is the last line which I want to end with because it's how we end up almost every service here at Light Church. Grace be with you. Never forget. Never forget there is not a single good work we do. There's not a single element of our faith. There's not a single element of maturity that happens apart from grace. Everything flows from the grace of Jesus Christ. So thank you so much for journeying with us through this book. Grace and peace to you. Let's spend some time in worship. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.